Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Barker, pastor here at Amazing Grace Baptist Church in Mount Airy, North Carolina. I would like to personally thank you for taking out time today to tune in to our preaching podcast. We hope that this message will be a great encouragement to your heart today. Galatians chapter seven. when you find your place, I invite you to stand in honor and reverence to the reading of God's Word as we look in the precious pages of the Word of God. Galatians 6, chapter Galatians chapter number 6, verse number 10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You see how large a letter I've written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make affairs show in the flesh that constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Uh, for neither the, they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Look at verse number 14. We're really going to focus in on it tonight. Uh, where the Bible says, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the room of his word. Our Father, in Jesus' name, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for the divine opportunity it is to set together in heavenly places tonight, Father. We don't take that lightly. We don't take it for granted, God. God, I pray you'd help us and touch us for a little while tonight, that you'll meet with us, Father. God, I pray that you be with the preaching tonight, God. God, you bless our feeble efforts, Father. You bless, add a special blessing to the reading of your word, God. I pray you help me. I stand in a place where no man can stand alone tonight, and I need your help, and I need your touch, God. God, I pray that you would just help us, Father, to get it to their ear, and then I pray that you would get it to their heart. God, as we've entered to worship tonight, may we leave to serve. And God, I pray if there be one here lost tonight, that tonight would be the night they'd come to know you as their Savior before it's eternally too late. Save that sinner, God, that's closest to hell tonight, Father. God, don't let them die and go to hell. God, I pray convicting power be so strong they get saved tonight. That one that's in a backslidden state, there was a time in their life that they were a lot closer to you than they are now. God, I pray you draw them back unto yourself tonight. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise, the honor, and thanks. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, now, as we look into this passage of Scripture this evening, uh, we see, just to lay a foundation for you, we see... Paul, the great apostle, he's writing to these churches in and around Galatia. And as he's gotten word that false doctrine has begun to be taught throughout those churches, and you'll find that they've begun to teach and preach that uh, salvation was faith plus the law. And you'll find that the problem here is that the law could not be kept. Amen. And uh, we see he wrote this letter to respond uh, to this legalistic heresy being taught, uh, being taught and he rebuked them uh, for trying to put on a show of their works and uh, of the flesh by being circumcised. And then in no certain terms, I like this, what Paul said in verse number 11. He said, you see how large a letter I've written unto you with my own hand. And uh, I just kind of can see Paul saying, I'm going to tell you myself. And uh, he said uh, that Paul informs them that they're glorying they're, they're in the wrong things. And uh, then we see in that sweet tone that Paul was so known for, that he informs them this. He says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross. And I begin to think about that. What do we glory in? 
in a world that's all about self-promotion and self-gratification, may we glory in nothing but the cross of Christ. Not the plank of the cross, the actual cross, not the practice of the cross, that crucifixion practice, but the person of that cross is what we should glory in. The central person in the Bible is Christ. And the central place in the Bible is Calvary. And he writes to us here, and he says, God forbid that we should glory in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I simply want to preach on the thought for just a little while tonight on five things about the cross to glory in. Five things about the cross to glory in tonight. And this thought was sprung. Uh, I was talking... Uh, some of you might know him. I know you pa- know the pastor well, Dr. Gene Hooker. And I was talking to Dr. Hooker, and I guess he was the vice president when you was with Rock of Ages. Uh, and I was talking to him, and y'all pray for him. His health's not doing really well. Uh, but I was talking to Dr. Hooker, and he began to tell me about a message he had preached of this passage of Scripture some time ago, and uh, how he had laid out his outline. And, and uh, just to be real honest, I thought it was cool. I'm going to do the same thing with my outline tonight, amen. And uh, how many of you know what an acrostic is, amen? It's when you take a letter and each letter means something. We're going to do that with the word cross tonight. Now I want us to look at five things about the cross that we should glory in tonight. First, we see the, we come to the letter C. And C simple, that's Calvary. It's Calvary. Calvary is literally the very pinnacle of Christian faith. Calvary's the one thing, friend, that separates us from every other major religion in the world. That and the resurrection, the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, no other major religion could claim that to be true besides Christianity. Calvary is the center point of the Word of God. Everything in the Old Testament pointed towards Calvary. Everything after Calvary pointed back towards Calvary. And Calvary is the central theme of the Word of God. So let's note a few things about Calvary. I'd say first, and you can say amen to this, Calvary was vital. Calvary was vital. Matthew 27, verses 51 through 54 said, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And when he had cried again with a loud voice, voice, uh, uh, we, we, see, we see that uh, in that we see that Calvary was vital for that veil of the temple to be rent. For us to have access into that holies of holies. You see in the Old Testament you'll find that the priest was the only one that had access behind that veil in the temple to the holies of holies. But because of Calvary and the transaction that took place there, the veil was rent from top to bottom, therefore making a way, making a way for us to be able to enter in to the holy of holies of God, what they call the Shekinah glory of God. And so Calvary was vital. What was Calvary vital to? It was vital to the Savior. How was it vital to him? It fulfilled his purpose. It fulfilled his purpose. Calvary is, believe it or not, when Jesus come to this sinful earth, he didn't do it just because he felt like it one day. But he come with a purpose, and the purpose was always that he was going to die for the sin of man. And that was God's plan. And uh, he fulfilled his purpose on Calvary that day. A matter of fact, if you'll study his birth, you'll find that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. And then if you go and you study those swaddling clothes out, you'll find simply what it was, is it was grave clothes. And he was born, and when he was born and laid in the manger, he was wrapped in grave clothes, symbolizing that he come to die. 
He was born to die. He fulfilled his purpose on Calvary. Calvary was vital to the Savior. It was vital to the Scriptures. Why is that? It fulfilled prophecy. Uh, Calvary, for years leading up to it in those Old Testament prophets and saints, they proclaimed that the Messiah would come and that the Messiah was going to die for the sins of the whole world. Oh, but then there was one day that it took place and those prophecies that they had been mocked for, that they had been martyred for, hey, it finally come true. And we see that it was vital to the Scriptures to fulfill those prophecies. Not only was it vital to the Savior, to the Scriptures, it was vital to saints. Why was it vital to the saints? Because it fulfilled the promise. It fulfilled the promise that he was going to make a way of escape for us. Not only was it vital to the saints, it was vital to the sinners. It it fulfilled the plan, the plan of salvation. It was complete that day so that we could have access to be able to go to heaven one day. Not only was it vital to the Savior, the Scriptures, the saints, the sinners, it's vital to Satan. You say, why is that? Because it fulfilled proclamation. That one day that it's that one day that, that there was going to come one that was going to conquer death, hell, and the grave. And that one day Satan's time uh, is, hey, yes, but a short time. That's why his wrath so great. Revelation 12 teaches us that. And we see that there's coming a day where we're not going to have to deal with Satan no more. We're not going to have to deal with the devil no more. And, uh, and, and, and I hate to be the one to bust a lot of people's bubble, but do you realize that the devil can't be on every single one of us at the same time? Because he's not omnipresent like God is. But you know what he's got? He's got those angels that followed him out of heaven into hell, those demons that will come to us and that will bother us sometimes. But you know there's coming a day we're not going to have to deal with them either. Because the devil and his angels, they'll be cast into that lake of fire. We see Calvary was vital to fulfill these things. Not only was Calvary vital, but Calvary was a voluntary thing. John 10, 17, 18 says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Calvary was voluntary. It was voluntary. Do you realize... I? I it just it blows my mind to think that the only begotten of God, the second person of the Godhead, would love somebody as worthless and as no good as you and I, that he would leave the portals of glory to come down here through the way of a virgin named Mary, dwelling the only set of sinless flesh that's ever walked this planet for 33 and a half years, just to die the cruelest way that the of Roman law could even describe or think of, just so that he could then go down to hell, take the keys, come back, conquer death, hell, and the grave, stick around for 40 days, and ascend back into heaven. Listen, that's an awful lot for somebody as little as you and I. When we think about what we've actually accomplished for Christ, I don't hold my head in pride. No, I hang my head in shame. Because we think, I think about what Paul said. Remember, Paul said, my hands are free of all men's blood. For that to be true, that would mean every person that Paul come in contact with after his conversion, he told them about the Lord. Now when we think about the people we brush shoulders with today that we didn't give the time of day to, oh, how it should be something to us. Oh, where's our burden at? Where's our passion? What are we glorying in, church? Calvary. We ought to glory in Calvary. If we can't glorify in what Jesus did, there's nothing else worth glorying in. Calvary was a voluntary thing. We see Calvary was vital. Calvary was voluntary. Calvary was victorious. 
Calvary was victorious. It accomplished some things. Now, I, how many of you, you can think of somebody that it seems like they're constantly working towards something, but they never, it never comes to fruition. They never accomplish that task. But we find that Calvary was a complete work. He went the whole way. He didn't go halfway, but he went the whole way. Calvary was a victorious place. We see Calvary was victorious for the Savior because his mission was accomplished. Calvary was victorious for the Old Testament Scripture to show the message was accurate. Calvary was victorious for the Old Testament saints to show that the Messiah had arrived. And Calvary was victorious for because he became a mutilated adversary. You say, what's that mean, friend? I just come tonight just for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's the glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. I didn't, I'll just be real honest with you. I, I travel to enough churches, and I sit in enough dried-up church services that I don't like going to church without the Holy Ghost. I'm sick and tired of going through the motions. I'm sick and tired of having ordinary church services where we glorify man and we put him on a pedestal when what we should be doing is looking unto the one that died for us and that bled for us and the finished work of Calvary and that's the only thing we should glory in Calvary was vital, it was voluntary Calvary was victorious we see what should we glory in the cross we should glory because of that work that took place there at Calvary not only Calvary, that's your letter C your letter R is this, regeneration regeneration 1 Corinthians 1.18 said for the preaching of the cross to them that perish is foolishness but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And we see, what did he say in Titus 3, 5? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. We see regeneration, the 1828 Webster's defines it as new birth by the grace of God. That change, that change by which the will and natural enmity enmity of man to God and his law are subdued and a principle of supreme love to God and his law or holy affections are implanted in the heart. You say, what's that mean? That means when, that's when you quit being uh, no good and dirty rot and the Lord puts something in your life and makes a change in your life. When, and I, I don't know about you, but when I think about what I was before I got saved, and I think about what I should be, now think about how far he brought us. Listen, I can't do nothing but glory in the cross of Calvary. Why is that? Because by statistics state, uh, I should already be a drunkard, amen? I should already be a dope I should already be an in and out of the system, but God. But there's a God in heaven that saw something different in me and saw something different in you and saved you out of that sinful condition, out of that sinful word that you had uh, when you couldn't reach up. But just so far, he reached down and made up the difference and bridged the gap so that you could have a changed life. So that you could be a new person. I, I, going into prison and preaching in prison, there's one thing I always want to reiterate to them, and that's this, that they can leave different than the way that they come. Maybe not in the eyes of the government, but in the eyes of God. They can leave different than the way that they come. You say, do you believe they save people in prison? Absolutely I do. I wish y'all could have been with us in Bland, Virginia, working in prison last week. I think we ended up having seven saved at that meeting. It's a good time. They got a bluegrass gospel group in that prison that could play and sing like professionals. I mean, it blew my mind. But you know, that's some saints of God that's got saved, that's made a mistake, that's messed up. But you know what? 
There's a God in heaven that although they're still look the same on the outside, they're still wearing the clothes that say Department of Corrections. On the inside, there's a new man that's been regenerated because God made a change in their life. Regeneration, what does that consist of? I'd say it consists of redemption from Satan's grasp. Redemption from Satan's grasp. Colossians 1.13 said, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. You know what that's saying? That was saying at one point in time we dwelled with the power of darkness. You know what that means? It means you were a sinner. Man. But you know what happened? It said, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. That translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. He made a change. He rescued you from Satan's grasp. And he put you in a new hand. Amen. He switched hands. He done the old switcheroo and uh, put you, took you out of Satan's hand and put you in God's hand. And we see the redemption from Satan's grasp. Not only does it consist of that, it consists of remission of sin's guilt. Yes, sir. Romans 3, 24, 25 says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Remission 1828 Webster's defines as forgiveness, pardon. That is the giving up of punishment due at a crime as the remission of sins. And I tell you, I got to reading that definition. I don't know if you've ever shouted over a definition, but I got to thinking about what we deserve, got to thinking about who we were and what we deserve because of our sinful condition. And I saw that where it said pardon. Pardon, forgiveness, pardon. That is the giving up of the punishment due to a crime. And you know, because you trusted Christ, that regeneration process includes that remission of that guilt. You know what that means? It means you don't get what you deserve. I think what would do each and every one of us a lot of good, every independent, fundamental, Bible-believing church in the nation, is for God to pop the lid off of hell for about two seconds. Let us, let us see what we deserved, where we was heading, and what the punishment for our sin was. I believe we'd have true revival. We begin to glory in the cross of Christ because of the remission of our sin's guilt. Not only does regeneration consist of redemption from Satan's grasp and remission of sin's guilt, but it consists of being reconciled to a sovereign God. Being reconciled to us, Colossians 1.20, and having been made peace through the blood of his cross, and by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. It means you and God made things right. That's what that means. It means being reconciled back to God. Things were put back together, reconciled to a sovereign God. So we see the letter C, that's for Calvary. R is for regeneration. Like this letter O, I thought about this, opportunity. Opportunity. You know, there's some things we get to do because of the cross that we wouldn't have got to do if Jesus would have just left us high and dry. The opportunity, I thought about this, the first, the opportunity to be saved from the fire. To be saved from the fire. I got this opinion, I, I didn't know what else to say, I just said, what an opportunity. What an opportunity. To be saved from the fire. An opportunity to have a home in heaven one day. 
Oh, I can't help but just imagine what Christ put himself through to save us from that condemnation. The opportunity to be saved from the fire. Do you know you had that opportunity? If you've never been saved, you've got that opportunity. There's breath in your body and the Holy Spirit of God moves in your heart and is drawing you. You still have the opportunity to be saved by the good grace of God. Going into prison and even the local jail, we encounter individuals from time to time that they will, they will say something like this, well, I just don't know that God can forgive me for what I've done. What I've done is just too bad. I don't know if God can forgive me. But you know, as long as there's breath in their body, as long as the Holy Spirit of God dwells, is dealing with their heart, they have an opportunity to be saved from the fire. If we're not careful, I've seen this especially not here, and I praise the Lord for that. Do you go with me some of the places we go, and just the apathy they have towards sinners, just the unconcern. They have a, this my four and no more mentality. They go, okay, me and my family saved, and who cares about the rest of the world? But God called us to reach that sinner. And there's not a sinner so low that he can't reach. There's not a bad individual so bad that God cannot save. But no, he come to make a way of escape for all men. For all men. That don't matter what ethnicity they are. That don't matter what side of the tracks they come from. That don't matter how many possessions they got. There's a God in heaven that loves them and has made an opportunity for them to be saved just the same you and I are saved. We see the opportunity to be saved from the fire, but the opportunity to be servants in his field. The opportunity to be servants in his field. It's a privilege to get to serve God. It really is an honor and a privilege. Because of Jesus, we get the opportunity to do and see things we'd never thought we'd ever get to do. You know, before I got saved, when I was just a young kid, I never thought I'd get to travel all over the country. Just being honest with you. I never thought, uh, if my math is correct, I think God's going to let us be in around 200 churches this year by the time it's all said and done. And I never thought I'd ever get to do that. I never thought I'd ever get to see individuals come to the saving knowledge of Christ. I, honestly, when I got saved, you know what I was looking for? I was looking for a get-out-of-hell-free card. I got saved because I knew I was lost and I didn't want to go to hell. But you know, he gave us so much more. gave us an opportunity to be able to be a servant in his field. gave us an opportunity to reach others with the gospel, to do something for God in these days. You may say, preacher, I'm not a preacher, but I guarantee you have a ministry. God's got something he wants you to do. God's got a work for each and every one of you to do. Well, preacher, I, I'm, I'm too old to do anything for God. I believe if Caleb was in his 80s when he said, I don't want the flatland, I want the mountain. You're never too old to be used by God. Never too old to accomplish something for God. You may say, preacher, I'm too young to be used by God. I thought about this. Remember little David? He just went to take his brother some meal on the battlefield. And the Bible says this. The only time you ever find someone referred to like this, the Bible says there was a champion of the Philistines named Goliath. Only person the Bible ever referred to as a champion. And God used a little shepherd boy to take down a champion of the enemy. God can use you no matter what walk of life you come from, what side of the trance, no matter how old, how young you are, you have an opportunity to serve God. You may say, well, there's not a lot I know how to do. Well, I, I, I'm right there with you. There ain't a whole lot I know how to do. But you know what I can be? I can be a gopher. Amen. How many of you know what a gopher is? Amen. 
you go for this and you go for that, amen? And you bring them the tool and you stand there and you learn and you help and you participate. Hey, that's just as much a ministry as the person driving the nail. You may say, all I can do is sweep a floor or wipe down a sink. Listen, that's just as much a ministry as the person that stands and teaches Sunday school. There's a place of service for each and every one of us in the work of God. We get the opportunity to be a servant in this field. But I thought about this, and I love this. We get the opportunity to be a sharer in his future. You say, what's that? You mean, there's going to come a day after the rapture takes place, after the judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be that millennial reign. God comes back, you know what he comes back with? He comes back with us, riding on white horses. We get to come back, and we get to be a sharer in the future, the glory of God. What a great opportunity that is. I thought about this. C was Calvary, R was regeneration, O's opportunity. The first S you come to, I thought about this substitute. Substitute. So what's that mean? A substitute is when you take the place of something. Now, because of COVID, something that become really big was them Walmart pickup orders. Amen. How many of you live off of that? Amen. My problem with them is they never have what you want, amen? When you put that in, you know what happens? They don't have what you want, and they try to offer you a substitution. They want you to put something else in its place. Well, this goes a little deeper than your Fruit Loops, amen? We see that Christ, Christ was a great substitute, amen? He took our place. He took our place. I thought about three areas he took our place. He took our place in our sufferings. 1 Peter 3, 17 and 18 says, For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ hath also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in his flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. He's a substitute in our sufferings. You know, the Bible says he was in all points tempted like as we was, yet without sin. I begin to think about that. Sometimes in our life, you know what we face? Sometimes we face sufferings. That's just often a part of the Christian experience. Anybody that tells you that serving God, rainbows, sunshine, and lollipops, they lied, amen? But serving God is hard. It's difficult. You've got those sufferings. Those things, in the ministry, we have what's called ministry woes. Just those things that's just, it's a weird situation, but it just weighs on you. It's a burden. It bothers you. One of those woes of life no sufferings. And I thought about this. If I was going to take advice from anybody about my sufferings, I'd want to take advice from somebody that's been there and done that. The Bible says he was tempted in all like points as we are, yet without sin. That means not only has he been there where you're at, but he's also conquered it. He said, yet without sin. We see he's a substitute. He took our place in our sufferings. Hebrews 9.26 said, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We see that Christ, surely he was acquainted with suffering. You think about the suffering of... Well, I just want to put it this way. Think about the suffering of others' burdens. Man, it's hard enough to bear your own burdens sometimes. But when you add the burdens of another... We see Christ, he put himself to help those people and share those burdens. We see he 
in those sufferings of those burdens. And then we see not only that, but on top of it, he was mocked and he was railed on. He was scourged and he was hung on the cross. What a great suffering that must have been. Substitute in our sufferings, he was our substitute in our shame. Matthew 27, 28 through 30, he said, And they stripped him, and they put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him. I'm talking about the Lamb of God. They spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. You talked about shame. You talked about shame. No, they, they stripped him. And then they smote him. You'll find they scourged him, they beat him, and they tried to kill him on the sturgeon post. Sure, there's a lot of shame that comes in that. They mocked him, saying, Hail to the king of the Jews. They really knew that he really was the king of the Jews. They knew who he really was, and he was the one that had the power to absolutely change their life and rearrange their future. He was a substitute in our shame. He was a substitute for our sins. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He didn't have no sin that was worthy of putting him on a cross. Didn't have no, no faults and failures to put him on a cross. But what he gave up was his deity so that he could take on our dirtiness. A little thing called the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Simply means this. God took Christ's righteousness off of him, took our sins off of us, and swapped them. Meaning we've been imputed the righteousness of Christ once we get saved. Why is that? Because he was the substitute for our sins. He was the substitute for our sins. Then I'll give you this. I'll be done here in a minute. We come to the last S in our acrostic. I thought about this, security. Security. Now that's very controversial in the day and age which we live. Even among so-called fundamental independent Baptists. And that's the doctrine of eternal security. And it blows my mind. The people are so crooked on that. When they have so much Bible to back up. I don't know if they've looked up what eternal life means, but I think they ought to read it again. Amen? But security, John 10, 29, My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. No man. You know what that means? Even yourself. Some of them that believe that you can mess up and lose your salvation, he said, no man's able to pluck them out of my hand, including yourself. So I thought about some reasons that we're secure. Now I've preached all night here. I thought about this. We're secure because of our advocate in glory. Our advocate in glory. 1 John 2, 1, 2 says, My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Know what that tells me? That tells me we've got an advocate in heaven. The Bible said he's making intercession on our behalf. He's our advocate. You say, how can you illustrate that? He's our lawyer. Amen. He's pleading our case. Now, if you give me imagination for just a moment, imagine we're in that courtroom setting in heaven, and Revelation 12 tells us the accuser, which is Satan, that old serpent, come down to accuse us before our God day and night. 
It tells us that Satan goes before the judge, and he says, well, I, I want to offer unto the jury Robert Potts. He goes, now, your honor, you know, Brother Robert, he, he, he's, he's forgetful. You know, he doesn't read his Bible like he should. You know, he doesn't do like he should. He said, you know, he's, and I'm just using you as an example. I'm not saying none of this is true, amen. He's saying, but, but we're all sinners, amen. He said, he talks about our faults. Talks about uh, how, how we don't do what we should do. And he pleads that case before God in heaven. And you know what it looks? The sad part about every bit of it is Satan's in with facts. Every bit of it's true. We are forgetful. We do have faults. We are fallen. We are no good. We are good for nothing. But when it looks like we have no defense, we have an advocate that goes, Your Honor, Father, I'd like to present some evidence to the courtroom. Now, I can't help but picture, and this might just be my ADHD, so you'll have to excuse me. But I think about this. He might have some of that blood from the mercy seat. My Joe, Your Honor, there's some evidence right there. You say, that's, that's my blood that I shed for this child, that I shed for this sinner. And so Satan's defense, it is true. We are forgetful, we are false. But when I look back through the record book, all I can find on record is the blood. Amen. Y'all getting where I'm getting? And we see we have an advocate in glory, an advocate that pleads our case before the Father. Not only are we secure because of our advocate and glory, we're secure because of our assurance of grace. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Our assurance of grace. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. I think about every time we mess up, and we've messed up today if we'd be real honest. Every time we've messed up and every time we've made a mistake, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Our assurance of grace. Then I thought about this, the accomplishment at Galgotha. That's why we're secure. Brings us back together in Galatians 2.20. says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The accomplishment of God, we're secure because we're in Christ. Because we're in Christ. I say all that to say this tonight. I'm right now done. What are you glorying in? What are you glorying If we're not real careful, I thought about this and man, I praise the Lord for what he's doing in the church. And I praise the Lord for the new building. But if we're not careful, we'll begin to glory in those things. We'll begin to glory in those accomplishments. And we praise the Lord for every bit of that. We know it's only by God's grace that that's taking place. If we're not careful, we'll get our eyes on those things. We'll get our eyes on the church house being packed. We'll get our eyes on the missions program of the church. And we'll forget to put the main thing as the main thing. And that Paul writes to him and says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ. This thing about serving God, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Him. It's not about having padded pews to sit on. And if we're not careful, if we'll just remember the glory in the cross, everything's getting ready to take place. Y'all don't think this is comical. 
But I've literally been in some places over the past year that have had church splits over the color of the carpet they put in their church building. You may say, that. well, that's funny, that's comical. It's the truth. You know what happened? They got their eyes off the main thing. They got their eyes off the main thing. They were glorying in what God was doing, but they weren't glorying in God. If we're not careful, even as preachers, we'll get our eyes on the amens that we'll forget about the amen. We'll forget about God. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Christ. Tonight, I just want to ask you this, and then I'm done. What are you glorying in? Take a real long look at ourselves. I had to when I was studying this, and I began to think, boy, I had to hang my head so much. Being in missions, traveling these means, I could glory and the people get saved in prison. I could glory in what God allows us to do in the travel. But may we not forget glory in Him. It's all because of Him. We look around at our possession, and God's been good to every single one of us. You say, how do you know God's been good to me? You need to go. God's been good to you. God's blessed you. Sometimes a lot more than what we deserve. Amen. If we're not careful, we'll get our eyes on those blessings and we'll forget about the blesser. May we remember to glory in the cross.